Good morning. Can you all hear me okay? Thank you, Adam, very much for that introduction. And uh, thank you all for being here. I, I think I need to start with an apology. I am from Canada, after all. Uh, Adam, Adam didn't mention that. I've, I've mostly, I've tried to blend in pretty well here, but I want to apologize actually on behalf of Dr. Plummer, um, <laughs> because our, our advertising materials didn't permit us to include the full title of this conference, which is Greek and Hebrew for life, Latin for eternity. <laughs> um, but now you know, uh, and I, in all seriousness, I am really grateful to my Daily Dose colleagues for uh, entrusting me with a Saturday morning plenary and giving me a shot to convince a captive audience, and, and I know that's what you are, a captive audience that Latin is worthy of your attention and uh, your esteem. So that's what I'm going to try and do in the time that I have set before me. And uh, I want to start with something I heard very recently, actually just a few days ago. My wife and I, <laughs> my wife and I were uh, visiting a friend's church, and there was, a, there was a really kind person who introduced himself to me. You could tell that we were uh, not, not typical attenders there. And uh, he asked, as one does, you know, what do you do for an occupation? And I told him, I said, I'm a professor, I teach these subjects, and depending on who I'm talking to, there's like a short answer and a longer answer, and he, he asked for kind of a longer answer, and I said, well, among other things I teach, I teach Latin. And he uttered these words, haltingly, he said, sorry, what is Latin for? <laughs> and uh, I think my favorite part of this is the apology at the beginning, because it's, I, I understood it as kind of an unconscious acknowledgement of like, I. I have the sense that it's important to someone for some reason, but I, I don't, I really honestly don't know why. And I, I was, it's such an earnest question, it made me chuckle a little bit, and I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity. I have to have my elevator pitch ready here. I have to be able to articulate this to someone who's got no experience with Latin pretty, pretty concisely. And that's, in fact, my goal this morning, is just to articulate this to you in a way that I, I hope will be helpful and appealing to you, and maybe in a way that's a little bit different from what you've heard before. I think probably a, a number of you in this crowd have, have heard about Latin before. Maybe your kids are enrolled in a classical school. Maybe you attended a classical school yourself. That's a movement that's really taking off these days in this country, which is great news for all of us. But I want to tell you some things you don't know about the Latin language. And a conference like this, where we're mainly focused on the biblical text, gives me kind of a, a unique angle to come from, I think, when speaking about Latin, which can be recommended in lots of different ways to you. So before I tell you what Latin is for, I want to tell you for whom Latin is. And primarily you, right? I mean, I'm trying to convince you you're the person sitting here. But not everybody in this room, as persuasive as I may be, and I have great faith in my persuasive powers, I'm not under the illusion that you're going to walk out of here, every one of you, and pick up a Latin textbook immediately. However, I want to speak to you and also to those in your, in your life, in your circles of influence. Because this pitch isn't just for your own individual attention. It's for those who look to you for advice about how to spend their time, about what to study, about what is, what is worth thinking about in this life. Depending on your age, because I know we have some attendees who are very young, and, and we have others who are less young. 
And some of you, this means, you know, your siblings, uh, your friends. For some of you, it means your children. For some of you, it might be your grandchildren. For all of you, hopefully, it, it, it means maybe your fellow members at church who are, who are looking to you for good advice about how to spend their time. So I hope you'll consider that, that my goal is not only to convince some of you, hopefully, to take up the study of Latin, but to convince you to be champions for Latin, even in a vicarious kind of way, it's a good Latin word, vicarious, for those in your circle of influence. Because I've heard many stories, and, and witnessed this myself, of people, people commending a way of life to those who come after them that's better than what they've experienced. Isn't that what all of us want for our children and grandchildren? We want them to have advantages that we didn't have. I didn't get to start studying Latin at six, but I've already started with my three-year-old daughter. She can say hello and a couple of other things. She really likes the sound of Latin, so it's something to work with. So I hope you'll have that broader audience in mind that I'm trying to reach through you as we go through these things. So, okay, here's my answer in a nutshell right at the beginning, and then I'm going to elaborate on this as I go. So because of my own training and what I spend my time doing, the first answer that occurs to me, and this is what occurred to me when I was asked this question at church on Sunday, is what is Latin for? Latin is for reading important texts, texts that are central to the Western tradition. But as I was thinking about how to articulate this to you, I realized, well, I've got to qualify this you know, this is what scholars do. We've got we've to really make everything very specific and precise. And so I've got to add some words here. I've got to say not just reading important texts from the Western tradition, reading those texts responsibly in an independent way, in a culturally smart and informed way, and not just reading them, but explaining and unrolling, unraveling their meaning, and not just ancient texts, but texts from the medieval world, from the Renaissance world and from early modernity all the way up into the 19th century and in some cases in the 20th century, which is something I'm gonna talk about. That's the first thing that occurs to me. And I think the first thing that would occur to most people who do Latin is why do we learn Latin? First of all, primarily to read and explain, enjoy and profit from the vast range of texts that Latin opens up to you. And I've underlined these three key terms because they're important, responsible, we all know at this conference, there's irresponsible ways to deal with difficult texts that we encounter in another language. Responsibility requires experience and strong guidance. And we don't want to be irresponsible readers of any text, regardless of the language. Independence, though, is also important. You know, if somebody asked me, well, why did you start studying Latin in the first place? It, it was a very prosaic reason. I was really interested in classical literature. And even though I knew no Latin, as I began to read classical literature and English translation, I had this strong sense of eagerness to cut out the middleman. Now, one thing you should know is translations of classical texts, for the most part, if you're going to read Ovid or Virgil in English translation, there are wonderful, expertly done translations available. It's not like you have to rely on amateurs, right? But I would read even those translations, and even knowing none of the target language, what would be my target language, I had this intense feeling of, I, I want to get past this. I don't want to see through a veil. I want to see face to face with the expression of this language. That is 
an ability I prize very highly, and maybe this is a particularly American sentiment that I've picked up on in my time here, but I don't want to have to rely on, everybody, on anybody else to tell me what an important text means. I want to be able to see it with my own eyes. So that's something that's driven me, and that's what I mean by independent. This has to do with the issue of translation, which I'll come back to in a moment. Culturally informed, I think, is, is clear enough. Reading a text isn't just about understanding the words in terms of your own language. There's a lot more that goes on in interpretation, as my colleagues have already talked about. Number two, I would say membership. And this is, this is a hard concept, actually, to articulate. I played around with different ways of saying it. I think membership is the best word. Let me, let me show you what I'm getting at by, by asking you a couple questions. How many of you are professional, trained historians of American history? How many of you have been to Washington, D.C. and seen the White House, the Capitol Building, the Washington Monument? How many of you have been to Boston and walked the Freedom Trail, Faneuil Hall, the old State House? When you have those experiences, you're not becoming an expert overnight in what it means to be an American or to live in America. You are giving yourself an opportunity to get a deep and abiding sense that you're a part of something much bigger and richer than yourself. You're tasting a sense of membership in a tradition, in an inheritance. You don't have to get a PhD in American history subsequently for that to be worth something to you for the rest of your life. I first visited Washington when I was about eight or nine years old, and I'll never forget it. I wasn't even an American. It's an impressive place. And it communicates to you, as long as your eyes are open, important things about what it means to be an American or to live in America. Similarly, even a little bit of acquaintance with the Latin tradition is enough to open your eyes to the membership that is available to you in something much bigger, much vaster, and much richer than yourself. You don't have to become a classicist. You don't need a PhD in Latin to experience that. So that's one of the things Latin is for, is even in a small dose, giving you an experience that marks you. Like that weekend you went to Washington, D.C., the one time to experience what it meant to be an American. So number three, and this is something I, I can't account for this. People just don't talk about. It's for fun. It's for fun. Do you, do you, need, do you need, at the end of the day, I want to ask, to rigorously justify in intellectual terms studying any language on Earth? No, of course you don't. You can do it because you like doing it. I really like doing it. That's not originally why I started to do it. The, the love came second after sort of a more scholarly interest, but now I do it just, because, just for kicks. I mean, I'm employed to do it, but I love doing it. <laughs> it gives me joy. I would do it if nobody made me do it. If I had a completely different job, if I was laying bricks 24 hours a day in those three hours I had to myself in the evening, this is what I would be doing. I'd be reading Latin. I like the way it tastes in my mouth. My, my wife makes fun of me when I put it this way. But uh, if you speak a language that you love out loud, and you should, you know what I mean. I just like the, I just like the way it sounds. I like the way it sounds. So you can do it for fun. And then finally, and this is not a reason that's important to most people. It's probably primarily more applies to people who are going to go farther in their Latin studies. But 
greater than 99% of all extant texts in Latin have never been translated. Most people have no idea about this at all. And this, this is something I want to dwell on for a moment, because you could look at number one and say, why would I put in all this work? Like, yeah, sure, ideally it's great to read a text independently and not be dependent on a translation, but life is short. You know, Horace said, uh, vita brevis ars longa. Life is short, but mastery takes a long time. It's frustrating. Why can't I rely on translations? Well, of course you can, but you need to remember every translation is ultimately sort of a failure. And if I were giving this presentation to a, a general audience, I would, I would stop here, I'd camp out here, and I'd, I'd spend a lot of time on this. But you're all here. I, I don't think you need to be convinced of the value of reading the scriptures in Greek and Hebrew. This is an extremely important text. You don't want to have to rely on someone else's interpretation, however responsible, however well-informed. We've got great English translations to rely on. It's a huge blessing, but you want to come face-to-face -face with the text. The scriptures are the most important text to which we can apply that desire, but they're not the only important text. There's room in our lives for other texts as well, including Latin texts. And uh, my older brother sometimes teases me. He says, half tongue-in-cheek, hasn't it all been translated? Like, wh wh what are you wasting your time on? And I can say, yeah, it's been translated, but here's an anecdote. This is Nikita Khrushchev and Richard Nixon in 1959. Some of you recognize this. I think a few of you were there. <laughs> this, this is a famous story. This is a famous story. Richard Nixon, at a very tense time in the Cold War, goes to Moscow. And there's an American exhibition there. There's a modern American kitchen it's supposed to display to the Soviet people these are the wonderful benefits of capitalism that you can enjoy in the United States. Uh, and Nikita Khrushchev, who's his, his host, he joins him there, and there's cameras. And, and this has been filmed, so you can watch some of this little debate they have. But they have this impromptu debate about communism and capitalism. And it's sort of awkward. It's sort of funny. It's historically significant. I would encourage you to learn about it. But this is a, this is a wonderful picture captured in the midst of their conversation. And, and Richard Nixon, who's a much younger man in this picture, is trying to give a stalwart defense of American capitalism. And Nikita Khrushchev is just giving him a hard time. Who's this guy in the middle? Yeah, not a famous historical figure, just the unlucky fellow <laughs> whose job it was that day. <laughs> To, to be the go-between in front of live cameras while the world is watching between the two, well, not, not Nixon so much, but two of the most powerful men in the world debating the most divisive issue at that time in the world. And there's a point in this debate where Nikita Khrushchev, who's, <laughs> it's funny, you should watch it. He knows what he's doing. He's playing for his Soviet audience and he's giving Nixon a hard time. And he says to Nixon, you know nothing about communism. You understand nothing about communism. And the translator, who's under great stress, who's trying to do eight different things at once, says to Nixon, Khrushchev says, you know nothing. <laughs> he, he left off the part about communism, right? And so Nixon, and you have to give him credit. He was a clever man. Nixon immediately turns to the translator. Nixon doesn't know a word of Russian, right? Nixon turns to the translator and, and actually says, I don't, I don't think your translation is right. I don't think that's what he said. And the translator says, no, I'm sorry. He said, you, don't, you know nothing about communism. And the debate continues. But my point is, 
Nixon knows no Russian, but he knows enough to know, I'm not hearing Nikita Khrushchev. And it's frustrating. You can see both men are frustrated as they're having this conversation because it's laborsome and wearisome to have this, this middleman influence. So what I would say to you is, just as you care so much about encountering the biblical text face to face, so too with Latin, it's worth a little bit of acquaintance just to cut the sky out of the middle because it's consequential. It's consequential. Those little things matter. Now, another thing I want to I point out here, this is Jeremy Brett of Sherlock Holmes. I used to watch that with my dad when I was young. I, 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 I can't emphasize this enough. When people talk about Latin, we just forget that Latin is intimidating for people and especially for children. It's initially sort of bewildering. We need to we need to recall this quotation from a Robert Frost poem I like. It's printed in one of the inside fly leaves of Wheelock's Latin, which is a post-war textbook. That was the textbook I first learned Latin on. He studied Latin like the violin because he liked it, because he wanted to. That's a legitimate reason, too. And if we, if we treat Latin, and Latin has been particularly subject to this effect, if we treat Latin the way we treat broccoli with our children, we're not doing them any favors. Just because it's good for them doesn't mean it can't also be a source of joy and fun and wonder. So I just want to plant that seed in your minds too. If you have the chance to talk to young people about Latin, not all Latin teachers, now that the situation's improved, there are a lot of great Latin teachers out there, but not all of them are great at conveying the sense that it can be tremendous fun and just because it builds character doesn't mean that you should dread your next Latin class. So here's how I would summarize what I've told you so far. Latin is for the unrestricted and unmediated access to the central stream of the Western tradition. It is like a master key that opens virtually every door. The other metaphor I like to use is a passport. I have a Canadian passport in the front of my passport. It still says, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II requests, requests, that those who encounter the bearer of this passport allow them free entry, you know? Which is, that's magisterial. It's majestic, right? Latin is like that. Latin opens more doors than any other language in the history of humanity. This may sound like an extravagant claim. It's true. I hope you'll, you'll allow me to convince you. Now, at least we can say it will give you a taste of what has been accurately called the most copious written heritage in the world. Isn't that worth it? Americans are all about economics and size. Americans like bigness. This is, this is something I appreciate about them. Um, bang for your buck should matter to you. Again, life is short, right? I can tell you, again, there is no linguistic learning experience you can have, which for sheer breadth can compete with the value of Latin. Now, I will caveat this because of the conference I'm at by saying, for value, to be able to read God's revelation to us in the original languages is more important. That quality is more important than the quantity that Latin makes available to you. But close runner-up in second place <laughs> for quantity. You can't do better than an investment in Latin. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but the vast majority of Latin texts which exist were created very recently. The vast majority. All the ancient Latin texts that we possess, 
including not just those literary texts like the Aeneid or the Metamorphoses or whatever, including even inscriptions on buildings, on gravestones, all of that together, if you add it up, has been reliably estimated to account for perhaps 0.01% of what has been produced. And even of those, Christian texts produced in late antiquity make up the vast majority. Now, the influence of that classical literature has been outsized, and deservedly so. It's great literature. If you read the Aeneid, if you read Tacitus, if you read Pliny, if you know these authors, you know, wow, this stuff is amazing. It's deservedly remembered and still studied in schools. But it's a drop in the bucket of what Latin makes available to you. A visual image here for you to make this more comprehensible. You could store all existing ancient Latin in 500, 500 page books, which is a lot, but you could fit those in Dr. Moeller's basement. Like it's not inconceivable, <laughs> right? I think there's probably more than 500 volumes in there, but you could do that. You could do that. You could see it more or less all at once in one view. To contain all of the Latin that we would have, you'd need to add another 5 million of those volumes. 5 million. That's how much Latin there is. So, beyond the classics, and I, I'm happy to talk about the classics, I'm a classicist, if you want to talk more about the classics, we'll do that, but beyond the classics, particularly for Christians, I'm just going to run through this quickly because I'm going to assume a lot of you know this already, but just in case you don't, what can you read? You, well, you can read the Bible, Daily Dose, subscribe tomorrow, right? You can read the Vulgate, you can read the Latin scriptures of antiquity, which have been in use in one way or another for, I don't know, going on 1,500 years or so. You can read the Latin Church Fathers, and that's just a little selection there. You can read medieval theology and philosophy to your heart's content, and there's some very delicate and choice Latin in there, let me tell you. You can read our beloved reformers and their debate opponents, their, their counter-reformers as well. They're all writing and speaking the same Latin language. You can read the Puritans. Puritans have been the subject of a wonderful mini-Renaissance in recent years. Many of us don't, aren't aware of how much of their work was written in Latin. Owen is a great example. Owen wrote voluminously in Latin, in very choice 17th century English-inflected Latin. All of that becomes available to you. All of that and so much more. That's of so much value for us in the study of the study of the scriptures in understanding the tradition and community around the study of the, scripture, uh, of the scriptures to which we are heirs. Now, I'm just going to go through this very briefly just to illustrate for you the vast range here. You can read Cicero's letters if you're into reading letters. And boy, do I recommend that. It's fascinating. You can read about what, it's like when, what it was like when Julius Caesar kept Cicero waiting in a waiting room during his dictatorship and how disgruntled that made Cicero. Caesar looked at him and he said to somebody standing next to him, look at how irritated Cicero is that he has to wait to speak to me. If men like that hate me, maybe I won't live so long. <laughs> you can read about that because somebody overheard it, told Cicero. Cicero talked about it in one of his letters that he wrote to somebody else. You can read Cicero, but hey, you can also read the letters of Peter Abelard to Heloise. Your discretion is advised. You can read the letters of Erasmus to Sir Thomas More and King Henry VIII. You can read the letters of Thomas Jefferson, who was able, evidently, to correspond in Latin. 
Not everybody was. Washington couldn't, but Jefferson could. You could go from the imperial histories of Tacitus, fascinating reading, learn about the emperor Nero and his characteristics, his way of living. You can read about the history of the Franks in early medieval Europe, or the history of Florence during the Renaissance. Or you can read a life of George Washington in Latin composed in the early part of the 19th century. Excellent reading and a fascinating perspective on how Roman categories are not just window dressing in the early American Republic. They're fundamentals to American identity for people in that time. You can't taste that fully without Latin. I could go on here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip ahead. But you can trace all these different genres, all these different subjects across more than a millennium of history and culture. Here's the bargain price, a few months of effort, a few months of effort. How many of you have Logos software on your computers or devices? Wow, wow. Yeah. How many of you feel as though you have made full and complete use of the resources available to you? Yeah, that's right. I was hoping somebody would raise their hand so I could say, you're mistaken. <laughs> it's not possible for one person, right? Even a team of people, it's not possible. But think of how cheaply all that comes. It's almost scandalous. You look at what Logos makes available to you and you think, this, all, this should be illegal. It should be illegal for me to have access to so much treasure at such a bargain price. I think this is a good metaphor for what Latin can do for you across the ages. And Latin is everywhere, was everywhere, still is everywhere. This is another thing I think people don't fully understand and appreciate. It's not just the great literature. I mean, that's the, that's the really important stuff. And by the way, we should hasten to add, it's not just poetry and history and drama. Philosophy, law, oh, especially law. The Romans more or less invented law. I don't know if you know this. Theology, medicine, astronomy, biology, musicology. A lot of early musical theory is all encoded in the Latin tradition one way or another. Letter collections, these are just some of the genres. But even beyond literary texts, public records of every kind in European cities. Royal and princely residences, palaces, have got massive archives, still largely unknown and uncatalogued, written in Latin. Private individuals who had the money and the leisure had their own vast catalog of texts and records of every conceivable description. Basically, every document remotely connected to the history and operations of the Catholic Church until pretty much yesterday was in Latin. I don't know what percentage of the current Vatican archive is in Latin, but I'd estimate it's probably north of 75%, just historically speaking. Everything down to the records of individual baptisms in individual dioceses in every far-flung corner of the globe. Again, until very recently, Latin, Latin, Latin. Even if you open a book that has been officially approved by a bishop or archbishop, it's, it's a, a living tradition called an imprimatur. It says, it, it says in Latin on these, I just saw one in a book the other day, there's nothing objectionable in this book. You can read it and feel safe about this. <laughs> this is still a tradition. We want our books certified by by the magisterium to say, hey, don't worry, you can trust this. Still in Latin, still in Latin. Hundreds of thousands of inscriptions on buildings, on paintings, gravestones, you name it. International correspondence, curricula, meetings, public lectures in European universities until just recently. Even for my own dissertation, there was a 19th century book that I absolutely needed to have. I found it, discovered, this is a dissertation written in Germany, in Latin, 
250, 300-page dissertation in Latin. And hey, I don't speak Dutch, which I think was the original language of this guy who was studying in Germany at the time, but I could read the Latin because it's an international language in our day. Certificates, my doctoral certificate is written in Latin, and the chances are if you have one, yours has got some Latin on it as well. Titles, baptisms, licenses, technical terminology and science, we could, we could spend an hour lecturing on that alone. It's everywhere. Think about how many of you have read a little bit of Shakespeare? Exeunt omnes, exit, maybe you didn't know exit was Latin, but it, it is, it means he leaves. <laughs> but there's a difference between exit, he leaves, and exeunt omnes, they all leave. Everywhere, everywhere we find Latin. And that's because Latin is a world language. Simple definition of a world language is a language that has outgrown the people, the territory with which it was originally associated, the people group for whom it was originally native speech, and as a second, secondarily acquired language, it spreads throughout the world like an infection. Not only in Europe do we find Latin, in every corner of the globe, in every corner of the globe until again, just about yesterday in cultural terms. And Latin texts are not just produced by Europeans who went to all of those places, although a certain bulk of it probably was, but also produced by people in those places. Did you know that there were young Native American men writing Latin poetry in New England in the 17th century? There were. I haven't read it, but it would be interesting to see to what extent are they imitating classical models? To what extent are they bringing their own experiences, the history of their own people, into their use of the Latin language? Because you can't avoid doing that. As with every other language, when you compose or you speak in a target language, you can't help but bring some of yourself into it, some of your own history and traditions. All over the world. There are other languages we can classify as world languages. Aramaic, Scott, counts as one, ancient Greek thanks to Alexander, did for at least a little while. Sanskrit, and um, perhaps more relevantly for us today, classical Chinese and classical Arabic. Languages spoken far beyond the borders of their original contexts by many people who imported their own ideas and their own twists on the cultural heritage embedded in those things. But of all of these, only Chinese and Arabic, just in sheer tonnage of written material, come remotely close to the size of Latin, Latin production as a world language, and they're dwarfed. The two of them combined would be dwarfed by what exists in Latin. So again, I'm not saying to you Latin is the best language in the world. I'm just saying it is demonstrably the most prolific. So again, think about your American instinct for bargains and, and count it up, count it up. Now, there's only one language that perhaps can rival it, who can tell me? English. English. Think about that comparison sometime. It leads to some fascinating insights. This is where Latin started. This is the Italian peninsula. That tiny sliver. All right, Adam, I'm going to use your pointer here. I'm pointing it at my own hand. There we go. OK. This little tiny, tiny light gray sliver. That's where Latin was born. It's basically a neighborhood language for the people who lived in a tiny village called Rome at the time. 
I realized if I want to update this for the 21st century, it's actually easier for me to show you where Latin has not had prolific influence. So I took the liberty of preparing this map. <laughs> the area is explicitly noted, uh, particularly here, here, down here. Yeah, I'll admit, not a lot of Latin happening there um, throughout, throughout most of the time until now for various reasons. But virtually everywhere else that you see, Latin has been produced by partly in connection with European colonization, it must be said, of course, but partly also in connection with people who are indigenous to these areas wanting to experience the pleasures and the power of the Latin heritage and all that it unlocks. Now, I've included this up here because, well, this is just one of my interests in mind. You know, my, my three favorite institutions are the Church of Christ, Southern Seminary, and the U.S. Navy. And I know enough people who are serving in the different branches to know some of them are reading Latin. I have a former student who's a helicopter pilot in the Army. And when he's not flying Blackhawks, as he is now along the DMZ in Korea, he's reading Tacitus and Cicero and Caesar. So I'm pretty sure somebody on, on some submarine in the Arctic at some point on his off-duty hours is, is in his tiny little berth reading, reading Virgil. I feel pretty confident that's happening. And all these scientists down here in, in Antarctica, they don't know it, but they're, they're depending. They're depending for life and death situations, just as they are up in the International Space Station, should have included that, on Latin all the time, every day. They're just not conscious of it, right? But it's there. So, again, I'm trying to impress on you. I'm trying to do a little bit of shock and awe here. This is, this is not like, Latin, like other languages. I like to say in my Latin classes, Latin is like every other language. Students are scared when they encounter Latin. I say, listen, Roman toddlers learned Latin. You can learn Latin. My toddler's learning Latin. It's not rocket science, you know? But there's another sense in which, yeah, Latin is like every other language. Latin is also like no other language because of these historical and cultural considerations. And that's worthy of your time and attention. Let me just give you a couple examples of kind of this global scope because I think they're fascinating. In 1791, a German-speaking minister of a Lutheran congregation in Ebenezer, Georgia. Anybody been to Ebenezer? I don't know. In Ebenezer, Georgia, he felt so grateful for the religious liberty that his congregation enjoyed that he felt compelled to write a letter to the president at the time, George Washington. The problem was John, probably actually Johann Ernst Bergmann, didn't have English that he thought was good enough to address His Excellency, the President of the United States. He says as much in his letter in Latin. He said, I would have written to you in English, but my English is, is schlecht. So, uh, so what does one do in that situation? What, what is some third thing, some tertium quid, that you can both rely on as a means of communication? Ironically, actually, Washington's Latin was sort of non-existent, so someone would have had to read it to him. But, Bergman thought, did him, paid him the credit of thinking, Washington's a learned man, wrote him this letter. It's very touching. It's, it's very brief, um, but he says, thank you for upholding, among other things, our right to worship as we please, because that wasn't always something we enjoyed in Germany, but we enjoyed in Ebenezer, Georgia. Incidentally, this is mistranslated on the Religious Liberty site where I found it. I'm going to send them an update 
but it's just another reason. Don't rely on middlemen for this kind of thing. You need to read it yourself face to face. We could talk about a description of the Chinese kingdom written in 1639, never so far as I can discover translated by anyone into any modern language, by a man named Nicolas Trigot, who was a Jesuit missionary to Hangzhou. Wouldn't you like to know what, what the Chinese empire seemed like to a 17th century Jesuit? interpreting it in the categories of European civilization. People still read Marco Polo's accounts of his travels all the time. This has just as much claim to our attention. It's gone by the wayside. You can read it if you learn Latin. This is one of my favorites, uh, a book called New England, written in 1625 by one William Morrell. A description, now I've, I'm quoting from a library catalog and I love this. It's a description, quote, of the air, earth, water, fish, and fowls of that country. Sorry, these are, this is Morrell's own title air, earth, water, fish, and fowls of that country, New England, with a description of the nature's orders, habits, and religions of the natives. And just in case you don't know, 1625 is like immediately after the first settle, uh, European settlement of New England. This is like right after they arrive, right after the pilgrims arrive. This guy writes this account. There's a Latin part written in dactylic hexameter, the meter of Homer and Virgil which, according to the library catalog, spends a majority of its verses describing the Native Americans with awe and curiosity. This is before a shot has ever been fired in anger in New England, before so much of the tragic history that we know has ever occurred. Two peoples encountering one another, absolutely floored by the excitement of that encounter. You can read about it in Latin, because you know why? The English poem which accompanies it, written in iambic pentameter, has nothing to do with the Latin part. It's not a translation. They're just two different poems. And people discovered this, and I love this from the library catalog. The English departs too drastically from the Latin side to be of any assistance for determining what the Latin is about. In other words, if you want to read what this guy thought about the Native Americans in New England as one of the first people to encounter them, sorry, you've got to learn a little bit of Latin. Isn't it worth it? Wouldn't it be worth it? It's worth it to me. There's other examples I could, I could give you, but we'll keep moving on here now. Uh, I don't speak of Latin as a dead language. I think I understand what linguists and what ordinary people mean when they say that. Nobody's born in the world today who acquires Latin as their native language from a native speaker, right? Of course, that situation ceased long ago. But to say that Latin doesn't change anymore or that it's not used for communication is false. Maybe some of you didn't know this either. Latin continues to develop and evolve only in certain parts of the language's structure. And in fact, the, the fact that big chunks of the language and grammar and so on are fixed is actually what allows Latin to be a world language. Because if a, if a language is in motion, it's hard for us all to be on the same page, especially if we're spread across the globe. But if certain aspects of the language are fixed early on, and we all have common access to a certain agreed-upon stock of texts that makes it possible for us to communicate with one another, even though we're widely dispersed. But Latin is still used to communicate today. There are active speakers who can do this with incredible ability. I would not have believed it myself if I had not seen and heard it now many times over. I one time had a debate with some friendly Presbyterians about baptism in Latin. I would not have believed it possible, I'll say again, had I not been there and participated. 
But it is possible. It is possible. It's a means of communication. Like any other means of communication, it's still usable today. In John Milton's day, when he was studying at the University of Oxford, you weren't allowed to speak English on campus. For the dumber students, you could speak Latin. For the more advanced, you might have a conversation in Greek. And for the really gifted, like Milton, you'd talk in Hebrew. But nobody's speaking English. Nobody's speaking English. How can they do that? Well, it's a means of communication. It's a language. You can learn it like any other language. And people still are learning it and using it. Part fossilized, but not wholly dead. Fixed, which is what keeps it living. I don't know if you knew that about Latin, but it's a good thing to know. And lastly, I kind of want to home in on this here. This is, this is maybe the main thrust of what I want to tell you. It's also a some is better than none kind of language. You've all heard the proverb, maybe. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And this is more true in some fields than in others, you know? Nuclear physics. <laughs> a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. How many of you saw Oppenheimer? So this is, this is, a, this is a true thing. Um, the scientists who worked on, on the Manhattan Project were not totally sure that they might not ignite the atmosphere of the Earth when testing a nuclear fission device. They were pretty certain it wouldn't happen, but not completely certain that it wouldn't happen. So a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. In Latin, though, you know, the worst that can happen is a bad tattoo. And there are lots of them. Um, I one time was approached by one of our students who served in a special forces unit of some kind. And I just always think it's cool that I get to meet, meet I'm a nerdy academic and I get to meet these people who've done all these crazy things. And he said, hey, our, our unit, this, this is true of a lot of units in the US military, we have a Latin motto. Would you, would you look at it for me because I think it's a bit wonky. <laughs> and uh, I have some experience I'm actually thinking of starting a business where I can just correct mottos for people. But um, uh, he showed it to me, and it was supposed to say, we liberate the oppressed. And what it actually said was something close to, we oppress the liberated. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. Because, because an active participle was confused for a passive participle, right? <laughs> And I told him this, and he said, you're joking. And I said, I, was, I wish I were joking, but it's, that's, that's the case. But the consequences are minimal. I just have to tell you one more thing. Coolest thing that happened to me when I was a graduate student, sometimes the Department of Classics would get an email from a member of the general public about Latin. And our, our departmental secretary would forward it to the grad students, because I guess the professor didn't have time for that sort of thing. They would forward it to the grad students and say, anyone want to take this one? And there's an email that came through one day which said, a guy who is attached to a squadron of B-2 stealth bombers out of whatever Air Force base, they're making a new mission patch for their unit, and they want to say X or Y in Latin. Who wants to help? And I happened to be first on the email. I said, oh, I'll, I want to do this. Let me do this. <laughs> so I corresponded with this guy. I never heard whether they adopted it, but I, I did what I usually do, which is I was like, here's eight different ways to say what you want to do. You pick the, you pick the one that sounds good to you, you know? And uh, where was I going with this? That's right. The consequences of bad Latin generally are not severe, which means it's worth the risk to know a little. 
you know? See all of the previous slides. The potential payoff is huge. The risk is slight. There are no life and death situations that depend on Latin. I'm still hoping for the day. You know this happens in the movies. Some kind of crisis comes up, and they find some obscure professor uh, toiling away in a university, and they say, your research has overnight become critical to the survival of the human race. And they, they put him on board a helicopter, they fly him to the White House, and he's bewildered. This is like the Jack Ryan scenario, right? And it's just like, all this effort, finally it pays off. I'm still waiting for this to happen. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for it to happen, and they say, hey, all these flying saucers we're seeing over the oceans, turns out we need, we need a Latin expert. <laughs> um, I'm ready. I'm ready for this, for this to happen. But uh, generally, the stakes are not high, right? Latin is a sandbox you can play in without, without mortal danger to yourself or others. Uh, I also want to tell you, man, this has been a real problem in my life, and maybe some of you are like this too because you're language folks. So often for me in so many ways, the, the perfect becomes the enemy of the good. I can't do something as fully or completely as I want, and so I don't even begin. I don't even begin. I despair of doing anything worthwhile. Don't let that happen if you're considering Latin. You can make a lot of progress in a short time. Yes, it's true, as I said yesterday, for mastery, it's like being a farmer or a gardener. You've got to water and be patient and, and do a lot of waiting. But to get access even to a tiny portion of all the riches that I've surveyed for you, it doesn't take that much work. And even if you do it imperfectly, it's going to give you, at the least, membership. What the literary critic E.D. Hirsch called cultural literacy. You can talk about the great conversation all you want. Do you really want to sit on the sidelines all the time? Or do you want to sit at the table in the great conversation? You have to speak the language to be part of a conversation, right? Hocus pocus. I'll, I'll be impressed. Does anybody know the origin of this phrase, etymologically? Yeah, Kaspar, so I'm not surprised that you do. Do you know what it is? Hoc est corpus. This is the, this is the body, right? This is, this is speculation. I'm not sure that this is demonstrated, but uh, the speculation is this term, hocus pocus, you know, kind of spells that, that people cast and sort of meaningless abracadabra, that kind of thing. It's a, it's a mutation of a Latin phrase because some ignorant people, they heard hoc est corpus, uh, pronounced however, in, in some mass at some point and, and somehow hocus pocus comes out of that, right? But this is a great example to me of, man, you could write a book about the phrase hocus pocus, as silly as it would sound. And, and, and its significance in Western culture, you can do a lot with a little bit of Latin. You know who had only a little bit of Latin? One William Shakespeare. And you think, well, he wrote his plays in English. Yes, that's true. That's true. But the classics, Ovid and Virgil in particular, are everywhere in Shakespeare. If you enjoy Shakespeare, you owe something to Virgil to Terence, to Plautus, to some of these other authors. Shakespeare had a few years of Latin instruction in a local grammar school in Stratford, but it was enough to shape his dramatic imagination for the rest of his life. And we're all the beneficiaries. Just a little bit of Latin. Now, you may object, 
that you don't have quite the gifts of a William Shakespeare, and I'll grant you that. I'll grant you that. But you can make, you can make a lot of lemonade with these lemons. Uh, I'll just give you one more example. People say this to me all the time. I don't know if Pastor Gray is here. Are you here, David? Anyway, somebody just said this to me yesterday, actually. I didn't plan this. People say to me all the time when they hear that I teach Latin, and usually it's some of the less young people that I encounter, they say, I once did a little bit of Latin, like 50 years ago. <laughs> and, uh, but you know what they always say next? There's two things they say next. The next thing they always say is, I'm pretty rusty, or I don't remember a lick of it. <laughs> you know, they couldn't decline a, a, a noun to save their lives, but they say, that was so valuable, so valuable. Now, if we want to be hardcore language acquisition people, we can say, you're not fluent, you can't speak, you can't understand Latin that you hear, you're not reading Virgil, you haven't progressed very far in the world of the Latin language. Yeah, maybe according to one set of measures, right? but they've got membership, and they hold on to that membership card till their dying day so that they come talk to some random professor and say, you know, I had Latin once that left a mark on me. I was in Washington City once. I was in Manhattan once. I saw the Great Wall of China once, because once is enough. Once is enough to leave a mark on you. So if people are saying that 50 years down the line, do you think it's worth your investment of a couple of months to learn the rudiments of Latin grammar. Speaking of which, I've just kind of broken this down into three levels here, and I'll go over this quick. You can attain different levels of mastery in Latin. I'm not even gonna talk about that last one on there because there's maybe 150 people living in the world who attain that level of proficiency with Latin. So we're not gonna to worry too much about them. You can be a member that is, have the basic vocab, grasp the essential grammar, be able to translate words, phrases, short sentences, quotations, stuff you see in the newspaper, in scientific journals, in legal contexts. You can acquire enough Latin for all of that to be intelligible in two or three semesters at the college level. In primary school, maybe it takes four or five, six years. If you're a motivated adult doing the intensive program or self-study, maybe as little as two to four months, depending. You can do this in a summer. You can acquire this level. I'm a member. I got my card. I did a little Latin once, and it changed me permanently. That's a tiny investment. Now, if you want to go on, if you want to read Virgil and appreciate the power of his poetry, if you want to mine the historical treasures of Tacitus, if you want to do all that sort of thing, yeah, it's going to take more study. You've got to have a large vocab. You've got to learn some more advanced grammar. You've got to read a lot in different genres. You might have to do a longer program, such as perhaps we offer here at Boyce College and Southern Seminary. It's going to take more of an investment, but still precious little, precious little compared to what you might think in order to have access to such great riches. And you can, if you really wanted to, eventually attain a level of fluency that we don't know for certain, but probably would be hard to distinguish from native power over the Latin language. It's possible. Probably take you more than 20 years. Um, I'm not pitching to you that you embark on that. I'm not even sure that it's altogether sane for me to embark on it at this point. It just hasn't stopped me, but I, that's where my targets are set. But look at that first level, okay? A couple months 
couple months of effort, and you've got that membership card for life. So, quit expectas. What are you waiting for? Thanks very much.